if you found out when you were going to die, how would that change how you lived? Now, some of us might just choose to ignore it, right? To live as if we had no idea and try as hard as we could to forget and then never think about it. Some of us might choose nihilism and just give up. Might just embrace the fact, well, I'm going to die, so nothing really matters. Who cares? Some of us might choose to embrace hedonism, just do whatever you want to do, because, well, you're going to die, so you might as well enjoy life before you get there. Others might live fearlessly, right? If you know your death's a long way off, maybe that would be freeing, or some of us might just try to escape it, do everything in our power to avoid it. We all might handle it differently, but I think that all of us would be affected by it in one way or another. Now, I can't tell you when you are going to die, but I can tell you that you will. All of us in this room, all of us everywhere, will die one day. It could be this afternoon or it could be in 50 years, but the fact is that it's coming. And I think this fact should change how we live today, now. Our passage this morning is about how we should live because our death is coming. Really, the entire book of Ecclesiastes has been about death. But today we get a lot of practical wisdom on, okay, we're going to die. How should that change how we live today? And so we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 7, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, and we're going to look at three things that we really need to know or we need to live because of this fact. So if you are able, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay, heart, lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns are under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. An advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other, so that man will not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There is a wicked man who prolongs life and his evil doing. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that not withhold your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 
Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you, for your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it is far from me. That which is far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hand are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, said the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I have found, that God made man are upright, and they have sought out many schemes. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would be here this morning. Lord, we don't typically enjoy thinking and contemplating our deaths. We don't always enjoy wrestling with difficult passages like this one that are hard to understand or even hard just to follow. Lord, we ask that you would be gracious and merciful to us this morning. That you would be gracious and merciful to me as I try to teach and explain your word. That you would be gracious and merciful to those as we try to listen to it. Would you help us? Because we need you. We want to listen and we want to be like your son. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Would you take a seat? So point number one in your bulletins, if you like to take notes, is because you are going to die, live wisely. Because you're going to die, be wise or live wisely. See, realizing that we are going to die, it should cause us to, to live a little differently, to be wise. It should make us live intentional lives, to act, to talk, and to live as if our deaths are just around the corner. And these first 13 verses, there are a series of really kind of practical proverbs, but I think all of them are just instructions on how we can do this, how we can live wisely. At first, they might seem unconnected, but I think they're all kind of tied around this theme of preparing for death. So let's dive in and look at them. The first one, verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. The day of death better than the day of birth. A good name here, it's a good reputation. Having a good reputation is better than expensive luxury items. For them, having ointment or oil, that was something rich people have. You might say, well, a good reputation is better than a fancy car. But the second half kind of knocks us flat on our backs. It says the day of death is better than the day of birth. The obituary is more important than the birth announcement. Because wisdom understands that the upcoming day of death is a little more significant than just your birthday. Verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. He keeps kind of going on this theme. He tells us it's better to go to funerals than to parties. Now, when I was growing up, I never really went to a lot of parties. Okay, actually, I went to none. Okay, I was a weird homeschooled kid, so didn't really get invited to a lot of those. But I did go to a lot of funerals. Um, it really wasn't that fun to sit my freshman year at the joint funeral of two of my classmates. Died in a car wreck, driving out on a gravel road in the country. And it was a closed casket because of how brutal that accident was. It was hard. 
It was good for my soul. Because death is where all of us will end. And it's where we're wise. We will sit in the pews during a funeral and we will think. And we will sit there and let the reality of death get into our hearts. Instead of just going and looking for fun and laughter. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. goes on to say, tears are better than laughing. The wise understand the necessity of crying and of sorrow. They understand the significance of suffering and of pain. But what does he mean when he says sadness makes our hearts glad? Well, you can think of this. Do, do any of you use humor as a defensive mechanism? Okay, I tend to do this. Okay, if you say something harmful to me or something that hurts my feelings, I'm probably going to make a joke because I want to I ignore it. I would rather laugh than have to sit and deal with the sorrow. Okay, the wise understands that sorrow that acknowledges reality is a lot better than laughter that tries to hide it or ignore it. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. He's continuing this thought that we need to, to live wisely and think about it. And he's describing the location of where our hearts need to be. It's not that we always need to be in these places, that we should always be sorrowful and serious and somber, but that our hearts really do need to be formed by them. The wise person lives as if they're going to die. The wise person lives as if everyone around them is going to die. Well, the fool just wants to laugh and party and have a good time. Verse 5, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. When the fool asks for feedback, they just want praise. Even if they need to be rebuked because it would help them. It's like a boss who just wants yes men all below them to say every idea is the best thing they've ever heard. The fool who just wants pleasure and joy no matter the cost. But the wise would rather endure the sting of rebuke, even by something like death, because they know it's going to help them be wise and live the way that they should. And he continues verse 4, he kind of uses a metaphor of this foolishness. He says, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. It can be a little confusing at first, but... It's picturing if you've got a bunch of thorns or grass and some weeds and you try and start a fire with that. And you get it, you get it going, you start your fire and you put a pot over top of it because you're going camping and you're hoping to make some dinner. Okay, well, it's, that fire is going to sound like there's a lot of crackling noise. It's going to look like fire, might even sound a bit like fire, but it's probably not going to help you cook your dinner very well. It's just going to make a bunch of racket. You need more than that. Fools can make a lot of noise with laughter and false joy and carpe diem, YOLO, pleasure-seeking living, but it's a vanity. It won't help when it's not living wisely. Because all of us are going to die, we need to be wise. And a good way to be wise is just to sit and contemplate our death, even though it's uncomfortable and we don't like it. And you may be wondering, when are we going to finish this book? Get to something happier. Okay, we don't always need to be here, but there are times we need to be here. And we need to sit and we need to think about it. Now, he transitions in 7. He, he wants us to get more practical. Okay, how can we live wisely? Well, I guess I need to be wise. I'm listening, understand I'm going to die. I sit and meditate on that fact, but, but now what? What should I do? Well, he wants you to see, too, that just because you're a wise person doesn't mean you're automatically going to live wisely. 
There are things that can get us off track. And seven, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. So oppression and bribery, they're kind of two things that can ruin the wise. And really oppression here, he probably means the, the wise are being extorted or blackmailed and being powerlessly crushed. Or on the other side, they're getting bribed and tempted by money to turn an eye to injustice. Now, wisdom doesn't free us from making bad decisions, does it? We all know plenty of people who are really smart who do really dumb things. Wisdom doesn't quite save us. But in verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Okay, the most important part of a race is the end. The most important part of a football game is who has more points at the end of it. Who has more points at the beginning doesn't help you very much. The most important part of your life is not how you started, but where are you when it ends. There's plenty of books or television shows or stories that start out really great, maybe you're really excited, but by the time you get to the end, it just ends up being terrible. It kind of ruins the book. It doesn't make you want to go back to it and enjoy it anymore. You thought, well, it started great, but I guess it wasn't as good as I thought. This is why we need to have patience and humility instead of pride. And if the beginning of your life has been really great, you should probably have some humility. It's not over yet. You got more to go. If the beginning of your life or your life currently isn't that great, you should be patient. It's not over yet either. You need to be wise. Verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Fools are those who let anger just lodge in their hearts, and they're carrying it around with them always. There's always something they're angry at or someone they're angry at. Usually they want you to be angry too. And if there's anger in your heart, you're always going to find something to be angry about, right? We have, more, we have access to more information than our ancestors could ever dream of at our fingertips. If you're an angry person, you've got access to trillions upon trillions of things that can make you angry. It's just going to take you a couple seconds to go find one. And there's plenty of people who are more than willing to help you. Or we can be wise. We can be slow to anger. can realize, well... Everyone's going to die, including me, and death is going to kind of reveal that a lot of the things we get really angry at aren't worth our time in the grand scheme of things. So the wise understand that. That's what helps them be slow to angry. Even if the thing is worth being angry about, go, well, you know what? I guess everyone's going to die, so maybe this is not as quite as significant as I think that it is. This next verse is probably my favorite in the chapter. For some of you, it might be your least favorite verse. Verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? It's not from wisdom that you ask this. If you think today is things are worse than they've ever been before, today our culture is so much sinful or more lost than it ever has been, this verse says stop it. That's not wisdom. That's foolish nostalgia. I think some of us might need to memorize this verse might need to become your life verse for a season, or at least until you get some of these phrases out of your vocabulary. So this is your, your warning, your public service announcement as a pastor. If I hear you say something like this again, I might just pull out my Bible and read this verse for you. And then I might just keep reading it until we, we move on to something else. But this is a major way I think that Christians just live unwisely. I was almost tempted to preach an entire sermon on this verse, but I'm not going to. We're going to get through Ecclesiastes faster than that. But I do think that some of us, you might need to meditate on this verse a little longer 
and let it sit in your heart. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. These verses don't just mean the wise are good with their money. It means that even when the wise get a big inheritance, they live as if they're going to die. They handle it in a way that they should. Their wisdom is what protects them, not the wealth that they get. After all, last week we talked about money and how it just disappears anyway. But the wise can use it in a way that is helpful, that protects them. So we need to live wisely, but there's a problem. You can be as wise as you possibly can be, but you're still going to die. Point number two, if you're taking notes, because you're going to die, you need more than wisdom. Wisdom isn't enough. Because you're going to die, wisdom is not enough. Wisdom alone doesn't solve the problems of the world. It can't even solve the problems just in your own life. And it can't solve our greatest problem, which is the fact that all of us will die. Verse 13, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. To be human on this side of eternity is to die. We will never escape death. No matter how hard we try, we can't make it straight. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other so that man will not find out anything that will be after him. You never know what today is going to be. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Every day in, in our house in the morning, our boys, we've started doing a calendar together. Okay, we're trying to teach them the days of the week and the months and all those kind of things. So we, we pull it out, we go over the day, and then we do the weather, and we list out, okay, here's the activities. We're going to church today. We're going to go to the park today. We're going to a restaurant. You know, we do these kind of things and ask them, how are you feeling today? We put, you know, smiley faces on. Okay, but here's the thing. No matter what magnet I put up on that, with its nice pretty art or how we talk about what we're doing, um, none of that is going to change whether it's going to be a day of joy or a day of adversity. My hands aren't that powerful, neither is this cheap calendar that we have. What this tells us is when we have good days, we should be grateful and enjoy it. And when we have bad days, we need to acknowledge God made this one too and we can't fix it. So we can't control which day is going to be. And most of the time we never know until we're in the middle of it. All of our wisdom can't change what God decrees or what God allows. It's up to us just to accept it. It's a limitation of our wisdom. Verse 15, in my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. What greater argument is there for how limited our wisdom is? There are people who are really wise and really righteous, and yet they die. And sometimes they die young. Think of a 28-year-old pastor dedicated his life to caring for the poor, yet he has a brain aneurysm and drops dead. Or they're evil, selfish murderers who live to be 98, comfortable, and no one ever finds out the truth, and they get away with it. It's the oldest problem in the world, the problem of evil. But it's the reality that, well, we're going to die. We need a lot more than wisdom. And Solomon actually argues something that seems really strange at first in verses 16 and 17. Be not overly righteous. And don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? What does that mean? Because on the surface, it almost looks like he's saying, yeah, don't really worry about this righteousness stuff. Yeah, don't really worry about wisdom. Kind of avoid that. 
But look carefully at what he says. I'll read it again. He says, be not overly righteous and be not too wise. So it's not avoid righteousness, but don't overly seek it. Okay, that's, that's kind of helpful, Pastor, but still, what does that mean? You need to explain that. Well, let me give you an example from church history. Many, many of you know I love church history. I love the church fathers. One of the things I'm reading right now is I'm reading some of the desert fathers, which if you have or haven't heard of them, these are some men and women who are kind of the forerunners to monks. Okay, so they read passages like Jesus saying, hey, you know, rich young ruler, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And they read it and thought, okay, that sounds good. And they sold everything they had and they went out to be in the desert by themselves, just them and Jesus. So I'm reading some of their stuff. So when you read some of them, you get a lot of wisdom and see some righteousness, but some of the other ones I just scratch my head and wonder. Um, It seems like they're just being overly righteous. They decide to fast all day long, eat as little as possible. Some of them decide not to sleep, or one of them I, I read says an hour of sleep a day is more than enough. Any more than that is sinful. You need to be spending all your time with Jesus. Or they stay alone in their room as long as possible to avoid temptation. So for them, it seems that that quest for righteousness can actually hinder them from getting it. They're even missing out on some of the things Jesus asked them to do by being overly concerned with other stuff. That's more what I think Solomon has had in mind here. It's this over-obsession with appearing righteous. It can lead us to just miss out on the good God has in front of us. Or if we sacrifice everything so that we can just be the righteous, most holy, most awesome person that we ever could be, well, guess what? You could still die tomorrow. That's not going to work. I think that's what he's trying to get at. But he also warns, hey, don't be sinful or wicked either. If you're really foolish, you might die because you were being dumb. Verse 18, he tells us, it's good that you should take hold of this. And from that, not withhold your hand. For the one who fears God shall come up from both of them. So he wants us to understand, if you're trying to be righteous on your own, it's only going to get you so far. Try, Try to do whatever you want and sinning as much as you want, that won't get you very far either. Okay, ultimately, we have to grasp this truth and hold it in our hands that we have to fear God. For the one who fears God will come out of both of them. We have to accept the limitations of our wisdom of our attempts. We have to make sure that as we stumble through our lives, often bouncing between righteousness and bouncing into sin, that wherever we are, we're living out of fear, respect, and love for our God. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise men, more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Now, we need more than wisdom, but he does say, hey, look, wisdom's still good. It can give you strength. It can help you. He doesn't want you to think that he's changed his mind and wisdom isn't worth your time or pursuing. It's good. It's useful. The problem in 20 is, oh, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. He bursts our bubble again. He just really wants us to understand wisdom will not get you to perfect righteousness. It won't get you to perfection. Doing your best can't get you to sinlessness. 21, 22, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows many times that you've cursed others. This is a really good, just practical nugget nugget in 21. But I think he's not just telling us practically something, you know. Hey, don't overreact when you hear people say negative things about you. Okay, because it's a reminder that there's plenty of things that we know and yet we forget in the moment in the reality of life, right? So we know that sometimes we say negative things about other people. Maybe we just want to vent. Maybe we just want to complain. But it might not be that serious. We just wanted to get it out. But really, we think a lot of them. We love them. We value them. And so we wouldn't want them to hear what we're saying because, you know, it doesn't 
really reflect all that we feel. It's just kind of how we are in the moment. Yet when we hear somebody else, if we heard them say something like that about us, it could crush us or it could really hurt or affect our relationship with them. Even though we're wise enough to know better, it doesn't completely change our hearts. It doesn't fix us. 23 to 25, all this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I'll be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who could find out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things, to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Wisdom isn't enough because you can't get enough wisdom. This is part of why I believe that Solomon wrote this. Okay, he's the wisest man who ever lived. Not just because he read a lot of books, but because God himself gave him wisdom. Yet no matter how much he still tried to seek wisdom, it was far off from him. He felt like he just couldn't get his hands around it. It's always just out of his reach. And so wisdom is good and it's necessary, but it's not enough. Wisdom alone, it can't save us from death. It can't deal with our deepest need, which is the need for salvation. Because wisdom isn't enough, we need something else. And if you've been looking ahead or trying to guess, I hope you could figure this blank out. Um, because you're going to die, you need Jesus. Because you're going to die, you need Jesus. This is our deepest need as human beings, that we need Him. That we're completely stuck and lost and often miserable without Him. No matter what you try to chase, no matter how much righteous you try to be or how much fun you try to have, you need Jesus. Now, some of these next verses here, starting in 26, are, are pretty hard. Um, some commentaries I saw called them the most difficult verses in the whole book of Ecclesiastes, which made me feel better when I didn't understand them the first time. Because on the surface, it looks like God, the Bible is saying some kind of demeaning things about women. Um, it looks like He might be saying that there aren't any righteous or morally good women in the whole world. Um, but before we get to 28, we're going to back up and let's deal with 26 first. Because ultimately, I think, my, my theory here is that these verses are trying to show us why we need Jesus or how much we need Him. In 26, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. So who is this woman? If you notice, it seems like figurative language. Okay, I don't think he's describing a, a woman whose heart is literally made out of traps, right? Her hands aren't giant bare metal traps. It's not that. It's figurative. And I think this description would sound familiar to you if you've read a lot of the Proverbs recently. Okay, the book of Proverbs is wisdom literature as well. It often describes both folly and wisdom as women. And it personifies them, and it talks about them kind of using this language. Or even um, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7, it will personify other sins like adultery and, not, and use them as a woman to describe, here's what this looks like. And so I don't think he's thinking of a particular woman here, nor is he saying that just all women are terrible temptresses. You should avoid them. They're worse than death. No, that's not it. I, I think he's describing folly and foolishness. Because again, the entire context of this passage has been about wisdom and folly. And we're going to die, so you better be smart. And if you're not smart, this is what fools do. This is what fools do. And he doesn't want us to fall into all of the elaborate traps that folly sets up. That's the beginning. And then 27, 
You know, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. Well, adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among these I have not found. Or your translation may say, one righteous man among a thousand I found, but a righteous woman among these I have not found. So what do we do here? Well, again, I think it's always good if you don't understand a passage to look at the context. Pay attention to the genre. Okay, this is wisdom language. It's Hebrew poetry. He's talking about he takes a thousand people, he's examining them. He only finds one guy who's righteous. He doesn't find any women in this group who are righteous. Okay, what's the point of the proverb that he's saying? Is it, does it seem like he's saying, yeah, men are really righteous and women aren't? It seems like he's saying, you know, 99.99% of men aren't righteous. The point is nobody's righteous. He's looking for perfect, for sinless, for righteous, really wise people, and he looks everywhere and he finds nothing is the point of what he's trying to say. Remember, too, go back to verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. I think this whole section has meant us to see the depths of our sin and our depravity and how much all of us need Jesus. 29, see this alone I found. God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. First, it's a reminder of our fall that in the garden, Adam and Eve, they were made righteous. They were made without sin. They were made upright, and yet they sought out schemes to sin. They were deceived, and they bit the apple, and they rebelled against God. And every single human being since then, man and woman, we all seek out our own sinful schemes, don't we? But who can rescue us? Who can make us righteous? Who can deliver us and save us? Only Jesus. Only Jesus can bring us salvation because all of us are stuck in our sins. We're stuck in our bad habits that we can never escape on our own. And Jesus is the only way to be saved. And rest assured that you need saving. Because all of us are going to die one day. And when we die, we're going to stand before God in judgment. And all of our words, our deeds, and thoughts, they'll roll out like a scroll while God takes a look and starts checking. And there's no weighing to see if the good outweighs the bad because it's only going to take one bad to throw that scale off and leave us deserving of judgment. But the wonderful news is that Jesus died for us. He died on that cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He died so that we can find freedom, and He died so that we can live. He didn't just die on the cross. He walked out of the tomb as well. Jesus destroyed death, and He was resurrected so that we can live again, that we can face the reality of death with hearts full of hope. And if you don't know Jesus, you need to put your faith in Him. All you have to do is believe. For many of us who do know Jesus, maybe you've been walking with Him for a long time. We still need Jesus. It isn't just something that we need so, you know, the day we die, He can help us out. We need Jesus today. We need Jesus tomorrow. We need Him every single day of our lives because we are going to die. And life is hard. But Jesus can be with us, no matter what comes. Kind of in summary this morning, where have we been? Well, because we're going to die, we need to be wise. We need to live wisely, but wisdom isn't enough. And what we ultimately need more than anything is Jesus. 
We are all going to die one day. It might be today. It might be decades from now. But what all of us should do is put our hope in Jesus. Because no one else can save us. And no one else can help us. Let me close this in prayer and invite our worship team to come up and lead us once more. Lord, I, I ask that you would come and you would help us. Lord, we all need you, Jesus. We didn't stop needing you the day we became Christians. We just realized how much we need you every single day. Lord, I ask that you would, you would help us and you would aid us. Lord, that you would come and you would walk in us and you would give us the peace that passes all understanding. You would give us the peace and the hope that allows us to sit for an hour and think about our deaths that are coming. And instead of falling into despair, we can fall into your hope and your love. That when we face the suffering and the pain and the reality of sickness and death and life, that we can look at it with hope. Not because we're so smart or because we're so optimistic or have such a great personality, but because of you, Jesus. Because of what you have done and the difference that you make in our lives. Lord, we ask that you would do that. You are our only hope. Would you help us to live like it? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship our Savior in song once more. Amen. Um, before I, I read our benediction, just remind you the pulled pork dinner for Robbie is today. It starts at 11 to 2. It's at the Comanche Elementary School. It's $10 per meal. Um, so I encourage you to go to that. Our, our benediction is from Hebrews. It's now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.